Welcome to Bios Live. I'm Tom Barbele, and this is being recorded live on TalkShoe, January 23rd, 2010. Well, we normally start with news and notes, but we have Gerald de Jong on the line, and I understand it's midnight where you're calling from currently, Gerald. Once again, I mean, from 5 a.m. to midnight, you're going above and beyond the call of duty in order to appear on Bios Live. Happy New Year. No, oh, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's, just, it's just midnight. That's not too bad. Okay. Better, very good. better than 5 o'clock in the morning. For folks listening in, we're, I'm going to try and avoid covering most of the information that you've already put in your Darwin at Home podcasts because I think they're really the, the primary uh, place that people should be going to get Darwin at Home information. But there are some interesting, there's some interesting twists and turns associated with uh, what's going with Darwin at Home currently. Can you just kind of give a summary of the game idea, the pounce idea, and some of the elements of reincarnation that seems to be coming through Darwin at home currently? Yeah, uh, well, you call it reincarnation. I, I would I would sort of classify it otherwise. But anyway, so um, the the idea is that in, in Darwin at home, I'm trying to you know put together a game that people will uh, be interested in playing and, and will come back to. I need a system so that, that that you know one can capture the other, so that they can actually uh, compete with each other. And uh, there has to be some way to resolve a conflict if uh, if somebody is attacking someone. And so I came up with the idea of a pounce because it's uh, it's very easy to do in uh, in the stuff I've already got. So I can just have a gene for pouncing, and then uh, whoever's at the highest altitude at the moment of contact uh is uh, is the winner of of the conflict. So it becomes sort of like uh, you know checkers where where one uh, one piece goes on top of another piece more like actual uh, players aren't they they're not they're not it's not just checker places checker um pieces where it's almost like a, a god game where the person is is looking down moving these these entities these entities actually represent players within the game don't they yeah, they each uh, each player is represented by one of these uh, one of these creatures, and and I'm I've got a name for them now. I'm calling them tetragachis mm-hmm. because uh, because several times in uh, while while demonstrating to uh, people and and showing people the project uh, as it was developing, several times people came up with the idea that uh, you know they were they were saying it reminds me of a, having a tamagotchi because uh, you know life continues on for your Darwin at home creature after after you log out it, and very slow motion but it, it continues on so people have the sense that there's something still out there that um, that they're responsible for and it belongs to them and that's kind of the idea of a tamagotchi so uh, I uh, picked the name Tetragachi and discovered immediately that it was um, completely unique uh, because the the Google search uh, returned nothing whatsoever. That's a very rare event. So I figured, yeah, that's the name I'm going to choose. It's going to be called Tetragachis. Do you know the legacy of artificial life development in the Tamagotchis? Not at all. So I've, never, I've, never, I've never even had one in my hands. Oh, well, this is an interesting story, and as it involves you, yours truly, I, I, can, I can tell some of it. Um, I'll, I'll try to give you a summarized uh, version. But I was supposed to speak at the Biota 3 conference that you attended. Uh, I couldn't make it because I was traveling around the world, but um, Sue Wilcox, who organized Biota 3, contacted me and kind of continued a discussion, and she had a friend in Hawaii called Ian Kitajima, who had, I'm not sure whether he was, he had some connection with Bandai who made the Tamagotchi. I'm not sure whether Bandai was going to invest in his R&D company or whatever the history was. But 
basically he had spent maybe 12 months working with an engineer and they developed a brick-like device um, which ran some bizarre version of BASIC and that's all they'd done within the year. And Sue Wilcox said, you've got to talk to Tom Barbelay because he's got some background associated with artificial life simulation and he might be able to solve this for you. So I worked with Ian Kitajima for about six months and we created uh, what we called the iToy, which was basically the next generation of Tamagotchi except it had uh, infrared and basically long-term play. And I started it with a command line simulation. So um, my interest was to take the existing Tamagotchi uh, technology and move it into something that was far more like an artificial life creature, but also that could mate and mutate and battle. And because these things, rather than the previous Tamagotchis, I think they had like metal nipples that had to be contacted in order to actually communicate information. These things were more like um, you'd have maybe six or ten kids in the playground that would each kind of form tribes and they'd just literally hold the things and the infrared communication would um, would create battles and these kind of interactions. So the prototype that I developed was also licensable and at the time uh, our mutual friend Douglas Rushkoff um, was working with Marvel and various other uh, IP companies, fundamentally IP companies, who were looking to take this kind of technology and map their own intellectual property onto it. So with this, it was really the idea that the Tamagotchi was almost like the um, Microsoft operating system that it would run on any hardware, or even the Linux operating system, let's be a little bit more open source. And so I demonstrated all this stuff, and uh, they were all very interested. And then the intellectual property rights holders started to realize that if Marvel and Disney both bought into this, then you could have some kind of hybridized Captain America, Donald Duck thing with, you know, combined intellectual property. And it got very interesting. But then, unfortunately, what I like to call the speculative technology industry, which wasn't really connected to the dot-coms, except everyone thought it was part of the dot-coms, kind of collapsed. But I did walk away with the underlying intellectual property associated with the iToy, which had a kind of compiler interface to get the information into it but then basically it was in the wild after that and my background doing long period simulation like taking simulations and running them for weeks basically text-based simulations to see how these things would evolve and what kind of problems would happen in 10 years time if the play characteristics continued fed back into that so Ian and I parted our ways I maintained the intellectual property but somehow Bandai took probably early papers that we'd done, none of the underlying stuff, and then moved it into the next generation of, of Tamagotchi. So it's still the next generation still wasn't as rich as the stuff that I developed. And I'm always disappointed, particularly because I saw the real market of these things into plush toys, into almost kind of robotic plush toys, because I guess the, the Furbies and other probably first generations of these things were, were coming together at the same time. But I thought all these really interesting artificial life principles mapped very well back into the Tamagotchi toys, particularly, as you say, this whole notion that it exists independently if you put it in a drawer. Now, the early ones were almost puerile. I mean, basically, they just produced waste products and things like that. That was like the first and second generation Tamagotchis. So really, all you were doing was cleaning up after the pet. But the stuff that I was more interested in was more about kind of fantasy universes and the fact that these things were, whilst you saw the creature, you also saw a window into the fantasy universe as well. 
And I think that, I mean, that legacy is really what you're picking up on with regards to this idea of the tetragotchi too. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny actually how how you can play with time. And uh, since uh, the issue here is evolution, and evolution is something that you can really only start to understand when you really stretch your mind to uh, try to uh, fathom, you know, just huge, huge uh, stretches of time. So in the Darwin at Home game, I, I have to play with time. And uh, the way the way I'm doing it now is that there's uh, it's it's a very calm, slow, relaxed game, actually. Everything happens very slowly. So, you know, you can, you can pretty well relax. You know that things are, the, the things you see happening, however uh, action-packed they are, because uh, if, if you run them fast, which you do on the client, you see that it's all, you know, it's, uh, it's all about movement and, and, uh, and running and jumping. And so, you know, it's, 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 actually, it's an action game, but it's so slow that it's uh, going to be something like a strategy game. And I was thinking it, it actually adds one strange element for, for a computer game. It, ends, it adds suspense. But you're also using similar dynamics, I guess, to things like Farmville currently in terms of allowing people to have everyday lives and just periodically peering into their Darwin at Home, you know, their Darwin at Home uh, Tetragotchi universe. I mean, that's, yeah, I, that's part of the fun thing as well, isn't it? I think it will be um, sort of, by its nature, a little more involving than that because uh, you kind of have to keep uh, paying some attention to your tetragotchi. So that's going to be, you know, it's going to, it's, it's a little less of a casual game. Maybe there's a variation that I could make of it that was, uh, that was more like that. And maybe that's something I'll be able to do in the future when I learn more about how this works as a game in the first place. Now, with regards to what I'm calling reincarnation, you were, you were kind of describing this with regards to pants, but the illustration that you gave in the Darwin Iron podcast was that a new player would probably be pounced almost instantly when they entered the environment, but in the process of being pounced, they would actually return with some of the, some of the characteristics, if not all of the characteristics of the creature that had pounced it, and the creature that pounced it would then get a hybridizing of the best characteristics from, from both the, the pouncey and the pouncer, so to speak. Is, is that the logic that you're playing with? Except for that last thing. There's no hybridization whatsoever. It's, uh, it's purely, um, it's, it's kind of like the pounce uh, to, to capture another is, is on the one hand it's eating, but it's on, on the other hand it's also uh, creating progeny because the, the pounced upon uh, individual who's actually, you know, the, the, the tetragotchi of somebody out there in, in the world, you know, will, will uh, become um, a, a child of the pouncer, so, uh, uh, which is a mutation uh, with, uh, it's basically a, a mutated clone. So there's no, no um, hybridization going on. So, so eventually, you know, you, and what it, what it actually copies is the, um, the, the structure genes. So you, you build a sort of similarly, similarly structured body, but it doesn't inherit the, um, the movement gene. So that has to be evolved again. And that's, uh, yeah, and, and the, the challenge was actually that I wanted to start with uh, random genes. Like you, you can't really give it a head start. You know, you get, uh, give it as, as little a head start as possible. So I gave it uh, just a head start that uh, it's, um, 
Um, everyone starts with random genes, but the people who are able to, who happen to get a, tama, a, a tetragachi who is uh, capable of moving and, and can be evolved to move, um, it will be able to capture others by, by pouncing on them, and therefore it will spread its uh, capable genes around. So uh, it allows me on the one hand to say, okay, everybody, sorry, everybody's got to start with random genes, and there's a good chance that you're not going to be a, a very uh, you know, capable walker. So um, you better hope that you get pounced and then you get a second life, which I thought was a pretty good pun. <laughs> but it's interesting as well because this, the potential is this, this is going to be in the sphere environment as well, isn't it? Yeah, everything takes place on the surface of a sphere. And uh, until now, I haven't been able, I haven't been successful. Uh, I haven't spent much time on it actually tweaking the, the water physics enough to make uh, swimmers sort of feasible. But on, on land, like you've got islands and you've got sort of, uh, you know, peninsulas and all So what will happen uh, with the islands is that very quickly you'll almost have like, a, I mean, I, I don't want to use the race metaphor, but almost like dominant races of these tetragotchis because basically through the, the pouncing and the occasional mutation, but basically the the perpetuating of, of particular genetic characteristics, super pouncers, basically. You'll have islands where these genetic characteristics could be quite different, but each of them would be equivalent super pouncers. What would be interesting, and I think um, Dave Kerr did this with AI Planet, is the idea of having like floating logs or things like that. So one tetragotchi would... Having, having, you know, created a perfect pounce on one particular island could get on one of these floating logs or maybe even some bizarre artificial life barge or something like that and go over to another island where the pounce had, uh, had been moved in a different direction and see what came out of all of that. I think there's, there's that kind of potential in narrative too, isn't there, Gerald? Yeah, but I'd like to go uh, keep keep it one step simpler by um, what, I, what I'm going to do is that as soon as um, a, a tetragachi uh, sort of leaves the land, goes off the off the coastline into the water, what I'm going to do is uh, switch their gene set. So uh, from that point on, they don't they no longer have land behavior, but they have water behavior. So uh, they could presumably uh, figure somehow, some way to flail their limbs uh, and, and get them you know, swimming to some degree. You know, they don't have to be terribly good because if they can get to the other side, if they can get to the other side, they can probably make, uh, make a lot of kills. So you just have to you know, do your best to uh, paddle over to the other side. And I hope that's possible. And that, that would be interesting, too, because then even if you became a, a wonderful pouncer, you'd still have to learn to swim in order to take over the whole world. And I'm not sure, actually, when I start running this, I'm not sure how long uh, a particular game carries on. I think it might uh, be something that, that's interesting to sort of do in cycles. So, you know, you start a game, and then uh, at a certain point, things sort of, uh, you know, maybe, maybe it comes to some sort of a, a stasis, you know, where it's just sort of uh, everybody's got the same shape, and it's, it's boring. I'm not sure. Mm. And in, in that case, I would probably stop and... and, uh, and Try and rebuild something and create a new version for the next run. Certainly, certainly. And that, I mean, just thinking of the pouncing move. I mean, in the real world, although there could be a wide variety of bizarre pounces that exist in this new universe, but I mean, if you think of the way dolphins swim, that could be a pounce on the land in terms of its actual the body movement, um, yeah. particularly. So maybe pouncing and swimming optimization might be similar things. In terms of, I mean, when you, when you think of simulations like Framsticks, for example, 
um, and potentially a, a wide variety of other simulations that don't come to mind. There are other elements which are uh, effective in, in the kill. Um, in tram sticks, they have you know various lasers and poisoning-like things, and um, you know I, I can imagine a simulation with toxic gas or actually all the stuff that Eric Burton is posting currently with the notion that you you know you inject your your soon-to-be pounced uh, prey with some kind of um, active uh, substance which may change various aspects of the muscle movement or all these kind of things. I know you're thinking simple currently, but is the plan to move in that kind of direction as well? I don't know. I, I like to avoid the, the things that I would sort of tend to, uh, to call contrived to start off with, you know, to make too much of a, a story out of it. I'd like it to be a, a, a simple with respect to the story because uh, a lot of it is, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the process of evolution because you can actually see that. And uh, there's, there's also a social aspect to it because I'm going to set it up so that each uh, tetragrachi has a sort of a speech balloon above, above it. Mm. And that can be changed. That can be changed at any time. So whenever you encounter uh, a tetragachi, you can see the, the most recently typed message of uh, of that tetragachi. And by the way, I, I've, uh, I'm going to see if I can record absolutely everything that happens mm. in 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 the entire universe. Mm. Um, what I'm what I'm going to be able to do. I, I built at, at one point uh, a, a class called Fab Blob which is capable of, of uh, packing up a fabric into a binary uh, you know, s- a series of, you know, it, it serializes it. And um, I actually at one point built uh, uh, two different ways to use that. One of it was sort of the standard way that, that holds uh, full detail, and there was a lossy way that, that, uh, that was able to store all the numbers, but then in much less uh, you know, much less detail, and therefore much less space. So what I'm thinking of doing is... Um, on the server, storing the entire universe very frequently and just letting the hard disk fill up with all these sort of frames of activity where all the coordinates of everybody in the entire universe is recorded every, you know, several uh, cycles. Um, As a result, I could later on uh, discover that something interesting happened, back up to it, bring a, effectively a movie camera to it and film it from several different angles uh, in retrospect afterwards. That would be interesting. Certainly, certainly. And I think the, the element of looking into these kind of simulations and being a player in these kind of simulations is something that uh, certainly a number of games have already have already experimented with. And I think it would be Fascinating just to develop a site that was almost like, you know, peering into the uh, the fish tank or the world or doing roving camera views just to, for, for folks who may be interested in entering the environment but wanted to have a look first at the kind of experience that they were going to see. And you've mentioned at pr- previous uh, appearances on Biotalive the idea of also taking this information and creating YouTube movies out of it, and I'm assuming that the technology is there to do that as well. Yeah, well that, that's exactly what I'm talking about when when I think about um, you know uh, in retrospect after after somebody, for example, mentions that they saw a really interesting kill happen at a certain time in a certain place, that maybe it was possible to sort of cruise over to that place and time since it's all recorded. And uh, basically set up uh, set up a YouTube camera. I mean, effectively, you can uh, use uh, you know something like ray tracing to, uh, from a particular point of view, paint the world. 
And it can take a while to render that, but once you've got it rendered, it's just a sequence of images, and, and that's, the, that's what I've used before to make, uh, to make the movies that I've already got on YouTube. Certainly. Or on, on Google Video, actually. So in terms of infrastructure, we'll, we'll have Peter Newman on the call shortly, but in terms of infrastructure with regards to this kind of game, you've mentioned that you have a lot of the pieces already. In terms of actually putting it up, you're going to do beta testing within the next, couple of months. I, I get that sense. Is that the kind of time frame you've been talking about? Yeah, I, I'm actually almost thinking in weeks now, but I'm not exactly sure. I, I would like to get together with uh, with a group of uh, uh, similar uh, nerds in, uh, in, in uh, my office and get around the table with everyone with a laptop and then just have a nice uh, critical brainstorm evening where everybody plays the game available for the first time. So these... Uh, that they will probably be more understanding when they encounter things that are not quite right. So, you know, with a session or two like that uh, uh, beforehand, uh, yeah, that's that's when I'll be ready to do something like uh, releasing it online. Terrific. And that, that could be within a few months. Within a few months, I'm sure. Okay, let's, let's say that. that. That seems fair. But I like the idea of initially starting with relatively, well, still relatively large time cycles in the real world, but relatively small time cycles in the simulation. So, what you're saying currently is, uh, you know, if, if a pounce takes three hours, then obviously people are going to be sitting around laptops for probably three to four hours to, to observe that kind of interaction or at least see the stability. But then you would open it up for maybe a week for a, a small group of beta testers, maybe a few of these weekly cycles, and then move it more to a month and then potentially put it out. Is that your thinking with regards to the kind of testing time frames too? No, I'm not sure it's going to go in those uh, steps. I'm really, uh, I'm not taking it all that uh, formally, um, but uh, I'd certainly like to have a test with a bunch of uh, understanding uh, programmers uh, who who might have some good suggestions as well. And you know, only after it survived that test, I would uh, would I would I decide to put it online. I, I plan to use something like um, like Gmail used, you know, where you can uh, once you're you're in, you can invite others. So that's, uh, that's sort of the, the plan for getting it out there. And in terms of using existing social networks, I mean, obviously YouTube Out is good for that. Uh, and in fact, it's very easy if you've got YouTube Out to link that into Facebook and Twitter and a wide variety of these other social networks. So if you have the group invitation, the kind of show and invite nature of these kind of applications could potentially grow your user base very quickly. But to this end, in terms of the actual infrastructure, what are you thinking about initially, and do you see that eventually it will need to be, you know, farmed out to multiple servers? And is the back end ready to be distributed in that fashion, or is that something that you're not even considering currently? Uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's something that uh, that I have to consider to a certain degree because I really want to, uh, you know, launch this thing. And what I what I have is I have a server uh, on a rack somewhere, which uh, which I pay for a monthly fee for. And uh, that's where I have my uh, my websites hosted, and that's my machine, so I can put on it what I want. And uh, that's where the server is going to exist. And uh, I've I've had scalability sort of in mind from the from the very beginning of this project because I, I have to imagine you know uh, at least several thousand people playing more or less at the same time. In a way, I, I, I approach that by keeping everything really, really small and, and abstract and simple. So, you know, if I can, uh, the, what I'm going to be able to do, for example, on the server is keep the entire universe in RAM so without any concern whatsoever, because all these creatures are not all that big. 
So that's one thing. You've got it all in RAM, and it's being persisted every once in a while in snapshots. But uh, the client-server interaction is, say, is, is sort of limited enough because the only thing that comes back from the client to the server is uh, changes in, in their text balloons above their heads and uh, new genes, which are also very small, you know, uh, network-wise. They're, they're just uh, they're small chunks. So in effect, there's sort of a trickle of information coming back from the client to the server. And uh, so that, that, you know, that might make it uh, sort of inherently scalable, I hope, to some degree at least. This is in part, I guess, why it takes so long to do a pounce, because those kind of interactions, rather than being in the kind of second or even fraction of a second as you would get, for example, in a first-person tutor, is in fact a long-term negotiation that takes about three hours in simulated time, but moreover would only be communicated if the um, if the participant, if the um, tetradotchi uh, individual was actually in the environment. If they weren't in the environment, their existence would be purely simulated over this time, and it would be only be at the times that they logged in that this information would be communicated. So I, I do see through your explanation how that would occur. Uh, so this, in, in this case, I'm not sure if I understood you exactly, but uh, for example, you, your tetragachis remain in this universe. They remain visible, and they remain with the text uh, above it that, that the person typed the last time they were, they were online. Certainly. Yeah. But in terms of the actual communication part of that, um, particularly if you have um, you know, a thousand uh, tetragachi users all logged on at the same time, the network traffic just in communicating the deltas may start to build, but if you expect over a given day that everyone will log in, but not everyone will be logged in at the same time, then obviously the, the interactions um, become a lot smaller. In terms yeah, and because, and because the game is, is sort of slow, uh, th that kind of stuff is, uh, is, is possible. I mean, in, in, a, in a way, it's going to feel like a strategy game. You know, it's sort of, it's a slow motion action game, but in effect, you know, the fact that you have to uh, periodically log in to make sure things are going well and, and, you know, there's something going on when you're not logged in, it becomes kind of a strategy game. Do you think, as Farmville does currently, it benefits a group of people that are perpetually logged in? Um, I don't really know Farmville, Farmville uh, at all, but uh, in a way, of course, uh, as someone who's he spends a lot of time logged into Darwin at home or to the uh, to the Tetragachi uh, universe. Will of course be able to evolve a lot further, but uh, that's kind of the things I want to encourage. So, uh, and that would be advantageous. For Certainly, sure. I mean the addition of these kind of uh, social network games is the fact that the more people you invite, you get benefit for actually doing those invitations. Do you think there's there's a component that you could back back into? into the, the Tetragotchi game. I guess if you invite people in, then they could become part of your clan that wouldn't pounce you. So, I mean, that may be implicitly what you get by inviting people into the Tetragotchi universe. But if you thought about any other waiting that would be that would come through the invitation? I'm not sure um, I want to take the, the approach of, of waiting like that. Uh, there's one interesting aspect here. Uh, in, in, inherent in this game is basically, you know, the, the genealogy uh, amounts to relationships among people who own those tetragachis. 
So you know, the the you are the 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 child of of effectively another player, or you are the, the you know the ancestor of of a number of other players. There there is that genealogy, and that's being maintained, of course. And it's interesting because that that sort of creates a almost arbitrary social network that that's constantly changing. So you know, you 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 sort of end up in contact potentially with with people that you didn't know but who are also playing and perhaps somewhere else uh, in the world or whatever so that might be interesting as well instead of a you know your your regular social network where everybody is known certainly well i found this through even doing little things like the uh you know the bio podcast that you develop a social network of people that you've never actually met and i mean to this end, your wife and daughter are going to be here in Vegas in, in July. Um, I mean, I've, I announced previously that there was actually going to be the potential for a biota conference in 2011, and I think it, it will be happening in Salt Lake City following the, uh, the, the uh, Philosophy of Biology folks conference, maybe at the tail end of that. Um, but it would be wonderful to have you in this part of the world, and I'm assuming as soon as we announce Biota 5, you'll... Uh, You'll start saving your your euros for for a flight out for it. Oh, I certainly hope so. Uh, as soon as I hear about it. Terrific. Yeah, I'd like to formalise it within the the next couple of months or so. In terms of uh, Artificial Life Twelve, that's probably the next big Artificial Life conference that's occurring in your part of the world. I talked to Bruce Damer uh, only through the week, and he mentioned to me there was originally going to be a games conference and then Artificial Life Twelve. However, unfortunately, the games conference has extended as these things tend to, and now there's about a 60% overlap between the Artificial Life conference and the, the games conference. But it does almost lend the uh, the possibility for Artificial Life developers to work it, walk into the games conference and vice versa. Unfortunately, both of them have a, a cover charge. In terms of the linking of, of Artificial Life into games, I mean, what you're describing with the Tetragotchi may appear to the listeners to still be fundamentally artificial life, but how much of... I understand that you talked to your son about his experience in games and used this to map back into your own thinking with the Tetragotchi. Do you think the movement into being something that's playable online will actually change your own ideas and move your ideas more into gameplay ideas versus what you've done previously in artificial life? Well, that will be absolutely inevitable because, uh, you know, suddenly instead of uh, toiling away in obscurity on my little uh, program that uh, a couple of people try out every once in a while, uh, I'll be, uh, you know, sort of trying to maintain what, what probably will be a fairly quickly growing community of people using this uh, this game because I have, it has the potential of, uh, you know, there are a lot of people out there. So, uh, you know, even... Even a few thousand is a big number for me, and, and it'll be interesting to watch that all grow, but I'll be certainly thinking more of uh, you know, the, the community growing and the, and the, the experiences and all the, all the uh, everything that comes out of it, people-wise, more than, more than before. Yeah. Certainly. So, yeah, it, it does seem to be re-energizing with regards to your specific direction. And I see Peter Newman in the chat, so he's, he's going to be on the call shortly, and I want to give you the chance to, uh, to get to bed shortly as well. But you, you came to New York over the, um, just over the holiday period, and you, you met one of your, I guess, lifelong heroes in the field of tensegrity. Can you give a, a couple of minutes just to describe that experience? 
Sure. Uh, the the history of it is that uh, I was uh, visiting a, a sculpture garden in the east of Holland, and I encountered this this artwork, which was uh, huge. And it was a tower, uh, a integrity tower, and uh, I was just mesmerized by it. So I took some pictures of it and uh, took them home, and I eventually uh, was inspired to start working on this kind of software to imitate that tower in in the computer. And eventually I was able to do that, and I was so proud of myself that I actually went and contacted uh, Ken Snelson, who was the the artist who had uh, originated this kind of structure. So I uh, contacted him probably somewhere in the late 90s, and uh, we had a, a short exchange. And uh, and so a while ago, I realized that I was going to New York for for a vacation. I thought, hey, maybe I can talk to uh, to Ken. So I connected with him on Facebook and 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 met the man. So this was uh, very exciting for me to meet someone who, you know, uh, several decades ago invented this kind of structure, which which I consider to be really still, you know quite unique and, and interesting in its potential. Yes, it was fascinating listening to the, the interview on the Darwin at Home podcast because you, you had a real kinship and a real sense of history. And certainly my own, my own reading with regards to Buckminster Fuller and his legacy and, and the various ways that he's permeated uh, not only the artificial life community but a lot of the social and philosophical communities that I have interests in as well seem to be echoed in an almost kind of divisive point with your uh, conversation with with, uh, with Ken Snelson. And it was interesting to see the other side of that perspective with regards to the kind of overarching genius. But I mean, at the same point, your interest in integrity came from Buckminster Fuller initially, didn't it? Or was that independent? No, it uh, my, my, it initially came from uh, from seeing that sculpture. And, uh, and only after that did I discover uh, other uh, works of uh, Fuller, which was, and, and Fuller had a different approach as well. The, the, um, there, yeah, it's a long story, of course, the, between those two uh, guys. But um, you know, the the main thing is that uh, that uh, that we still haven't really, I think, uh, discovered the potential of what this uh, kind of structure can do. So certainly, certainly, and also the linking with. I want to, I want to evolve them. I, I still want to evolve them, Tom. Certainly. <laughs> Certainly. And I think yeah, there was some description with regards to the linking of biology, and certainly Dick Gordon is also a champion of, of, of tensegrities within the body, or at least exploring the, the power of tensegrities within proteins and a wide variety of other things. So it's fascinating to hear that. And look, if there is any chance that you can get here in July this year, it would be really wonderful to have the chance to spend a, a day or two with you. I'm, I'm sure your wife and daughter are... Um, uh, in some regard, a copy of the Gerald Young experience. But if you can get here uh, in any way, shape, or form, it would be wonderful to see you here in July, Gerald. Okay, well, I'm, unfortunately, I'm going to be uh, on a wonderful canoe trip up in the north of uh, Canada. Alas, alas. Well, we'll be thinking of you, and certainly um, if, you're, uh, if your wife and daughter want to see the greater Las Vegas experience, the Barbalays are the people to, uh, to meet in Las Vegas. I'll let you get to bed. I see Peter Newman in the chat. I, I see that he wants to call in currently. It's been wonderful as always, Gerald. We'll need to work out a time where it isn't midnight your time and record another Biot Live in the near future to get an update because it sounds like things are progressing in weeks rather than months. And I'd like to maybe even um, maybe even get the scoop announcement with regards to release of all of this. Okay. Talk to you soon, Gerald. Thanks. Bye-bye.